Well, there's three warning signs in our text that you have become a Pharisee. First warning sign is that you have religious or moral standards that you demand of others and you can't even keep them yourself. Jesus is, of course, at the culmination of uh, his declarations against the Pharisees. This is this religious group, uh, as we're going through the book of Matthew, this religious group that is really set up against God, although they think they're for God. They're the ones in power. They're the ones who are looked up to by the rest of society, this group called the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet Jesus is saying, no, they're doing things the wrong way. They have religious or moral standards that they demand of others and they can't even keep them themselves. That's the first warning. The second is that they do every good deed to be seen by others. It's a scary thought. And the third warning is that they crave titles or positions of power. Jesus is warning the Pharisees and the scribes that they have taken things way too far. They've actually, in their zealousness to be for God, they've moved away through their pride, moved away from God. And these warnings are very, very explicit, as you see in the woes, which we come to a little bit later. Of course, what happens if we ignore the warning signs? Well, I've got a little joke for you, and it's about a guy called Frank. Frank was uh, out with his golfing buddies. As usual, on a Saturday morning, he'd love to go out golfing uh, every Saturday. But they, this one Saturday morning in particular, they saw a hearse drive past, and there was a procession of cars following. Now, Frank's not a very sentimental bloke, but on this particular morning, he took off his hat, he bowed his head and sort of crossed his arm over his chest. And he took a moment of silence before he got on with the game. Now, Frank's golfing buddies knew that, hey, this is out of character. They said, Frank, what's going on? You, like, why are you so somber? Why are you paying so much respect to this sort of funeral procession that's going past? And he said, well, Frank said, well, it's the least I could do. You know, I was married to her for 50 years. And then he went on and went off to the 12th hole. So this illustrates the point, don't wait until it's too late to realise you have a problem. And this is so true for Christians being Pharisees because it is utterly dangerous, utterly. So there's seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus puts forward and I put forward to you that Jesus gives us seven symptoms of what it means to be a Pharisee, seven symptoms. What you find in the Bible is that Jesus is often described as the great physician. He's a doctor, doctor of the soul, doctor of the heart. He's someone that can both identify what things are like from our symptoms and also heal our heart. And so what we're going to look at is both the symptoms and also the remedy that come from Jesus over these seven symptoms of a Pharisee. So let me take you through them in order. Number one, the first symptom of a Pharisee, you shut the kingdom to yourself and others. And we see this in verse 13. See, the Pharisees were this religious group that had been so concerned about law-keeping, ritual, ceremony, tradition, that they totally missed God. And this is... A scary thing because it teaches us today that you can be highly religious, 
go to church, do all the right things, and not know God at all. That's, that's scary. And what you're doing is you're shutting the kingdom to yourself and you're not letting anyone else in because your example to your workmates or perhaps to your family or perhaps to your friends is, man, if that's what a Christian's like, I don't want to be like them because they, they're not any different. In fact, they're probably sometimes worse than the non-religious people or the people of other religions in our culture. It is a scary thing. So the symptom is you shut yourself, you shut the kingdom to yourself and others. Jesus puts it this way, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, you slam the door shut by the way that you live. It tells us that Christianity is not just about what we say, but about what we do. But of course, if you just think that Christianity is about doing religious things, then you're actually steering yourself away from God. We can have examples of this symptom today. We can think that all we do to be Christian is go to church, get baptised, have communion, obey the rules, follow the traditions. And really, when you get to the bottom of the heart, there's little or nothing to do with God. Let me imagine it with you this way. Let's say you uh, run the most exclusive nightclub in Adelaide. The most exclusive one. It's so exclusive, this nightclub, that only the most famous, the best-looking, the most important VIPs can enter. And you're so consumed with the regulations for entering, ensuring that it's the most exclusive club, that you actually never end up letting anyone else in. In fact, you can't even go in yourself because it's so exclusive. You're so focused on keeping the rules together, you forget the whole point is to enter in. Now, the Bible tells us that there is a remedy for this heart issue, that we can get religious without having God at the centre. And the remedy is that Jesus alone is qualified to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't get there by keeping the rules. You can't get there by following the traditions. You can't get there by turning up once a week, once a month, once a year wants to get baptised, wants to have communion, wants to get married, doesn't get you in. Only Jesus qualifies himself because he's the only one that is truly right before God. And so if then we trust in Jesus, he puts us on the door list. He's the only one that gets us in. It's an invitation only place, the kingdom of heaven. And you need to know the right person to get in, and that's Jesus. So that's the first symptom of being a Pharisee. The second symptom we see in verse 15 is conversion that doesn't save you. So uh, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the British comedy Black Books. Has anyone seen that? If you see a few nods around the place, yes. So there's a particular episode where uh, Bernard, one of the main characters, has the Jehovah's Witnesses come to visit. And of course, he He's trying to sort of get his accounting in order at home and he's very excited that there's a distraction at the door. And so the door opens and the Jehovah's Witnesses and they're there and they said, we're here to speak to you about Jesus. And he says to them, oh, wonderful, come on in. And they're like, oh. And they said, oh, we've never had this happen before. <laughs> we've never actually been welcomed into a house, as you can imagine. And so anyway, they, they come in and they're all a bit flustered. 
And he's like, have you got any material or religious stuff? I said, oh, yes, we've got a bag full of the religious material to give to you. And, they, and he asked them, so have you got any Bible stories or anything about God to tell me? And they said, oh, yes. Yeah. Remember this parable and that parable? And actually Bernard starts to correct them, which is funny. Anyway, it cuts to the end of the scene. And they're all sort of got a glass of sherry in their hand. I don't know if that's allowed for Jehovah's Witnesses, but there you go. And, and he's actually smoking a cigarette and they've all had a really good time. And he's explaining to him, them, fascinatingly, that at the centre of Christianity is that Jesus and God are the same person. Now, this is a big... And they're like, oh, okay. Which, of course, is a big problem if you're a Jehovah's Witness because you don't believe that. And so it seems that he knows more about what it means to be a Christian than they do. But it does paint a very serious problem in amongst the comedy is that you can call people to convert to something like Jehovah's Witnesses do that doesn't save you. You can join religion. You can convert to religion and not be saved. I mean, at the end of the day, what's the big picture here? What's the big thing going on behind the scenes of our physical world, there's a spiritual reality. The human soul has an afterlife. We all yearn for it. We all wonder what's next. We try and avoid it. We have this incessant need as people to live longer, to live healthier. We never ask ourselves why. Because there is this idea maybe pushed right back into the back of our minds that death comes. I want to avoid that. Why? It's unknown. And if there is an afterlife, gee, that's a scary thought. And so the point being is that God has always been on about saving people and he doesn't do that through accepting rules made through religion. He does it in a different way. One of the problems is the Pharisees spent enormous amounts of effort to convert people, to train them, to, you know, they had a next generation leadership program for 10 years. Every year they would you know, do more and more training for their followers and disciples. And if you graduate to the next level, they just keep training more and more. But the problem is, like a good curry that you put in the fridge and it gets a bit, you know, tastier and the flavor intensifies, it seems to happen over time with the followers. They intensify and they become worse than their teachers, these followers of the Pharisees, and further away from God. It's a scary thought. Jesus puts it this way. You make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, this is a big problem. It's been a problem pretty much forever in Christianity. Uh, In that, people will convert to Christianity but not be saved. They think they're a Christian, but they're not. This happened for a guy called John Wesley. In fact, not only did he... And back in those days, you sort of were born a Christian, which is interesting. And so he grew up and thought a good profession is to become a preacher or a pastor. And so John Wesley sort of went off to Bible college and he was an excellent student. In fact, they used to pay him out and, and call them the Methodists because they were so methodical in the way that they studied the Bible and rigorous in the way that they fasted twice a week, which oddly enough is what the Pharisees did and disciplined in the way that they stuck to religion. And so he even went, where he grew up in uh, the UK, even went over to uh, the UK colony in the United States of America and 
began to preach over there, and it was a disaster. Didn't go very well at all. In fact, he called this, he got the boat back, and he was really questioning in his heart whether he even believed the things he was saying himself, which is an important question to ask. Anyway, I think it's in 17, well, I can't remember the year now, 1739. Um, John Wesley and a group of other people were in a place called Aldersgate Street meeting with some others who were reading the Bible and trying to get to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Now, opened a, a commentary by a guy called Martin Luther on the book of Galatians. And it was talking about a tremendous thing, it was talking about the grace of God, that it was a free gift. It wasn't something that could be earned being saved. It was a gift of God, the work of Jesus to them. And John Wesley describes something really profound and really simple. He said his heart was warmed. It wasn't external. Wasn't through doing particular good works, his heart was warmed. But gee, I tell you, that man caught fire. And he preached the offer of salvation to all, the free gift to all for the rest of his life as a totally transformed man. And that blaze spread out from him to tens and hundreds of thousands of people in the 18th century. What a wonderful thing. And so the remedy is actually grace experienced by John Wesley. Okay, so we've covered two symptoms so far. You shut the door to the kingdom. If it's just about works, you can get converted without being saved. And the third symptom of being a Pharisee is making blasphemous oaths. Blasphemous oaths. In, uh, back in uh, the day when this was written, uh, recorded, uh, to make the religious people would often make promises based on particular articles or items in the temple. So, you know, you'd say, I swear by the gold in the temple. And that would mean you're making a very serious promise. Of course, the problem with that is it meant that the rest of your word wasn't to be taken so seriously or literally. So you could say, oh, you know, I'm going to mow your lawns tomorrow, but you're not making an oath about it. And then people wouldn't really be sure if you were going to mow their lawns tomorrow to help them out. Or you could, you know say to your husband or your wife, I'm going to do the shopping tomorrow. But you wouldn't really be sure whether they were going to do it or not unless they made an oath and then you knew. And depending on the highness of the thing that you were swearing by, then you knew that they were really going to do it. And Jesus says that this whole system is totally messed up in verses 16 to 22 because Jesus has already spoken out about this. He says that your yes be yes and your no be no. The issue at the heart, of course, is integrity. God's people are to be like God. If God says he's going to do something, does he keep his word? Yes, he does. If God said he's not going to do something, he also keeps his word. And so we shouldn't have certain parts of our life that people don't have our, keep integrity, keep tabs on our integrity for in certain parts that we do. It's like saying it's fine to have a religious life where you do religious things on Sunday and yet Monday to Saturday you can totally avoid God. This is a real danger for us. It is a symptom that often comes in our hearts where we separate our lives into the religious and the non-religious, the sacred and the secular. I mean, uh, Darren's going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks on Workplace Sunday. God is to be involved in all of our lives because he is what? Lord 
of all. And so it is then blasphemous for God's people or people who claim to be God's people to not care at all about certain parts of their life as not being under his rule and have other religious parts that firmly are. And so what is the remedy for this? It's actually to receive forgiveness from sin and to bring all of our lives under the lordship of Christ. Not to have a sacred secular divide, but rather see that Jesus truly is Lord. And it's a sin to separate your religious from your non-religious life. Imagine it this way. Imagine there's a Christian GP who works in a clinic and there's a huge pressure to prescribe medication that's actually not the best one for the patients, but if you prescribe that particular medication, the pharmaceutical company will give you a little bit of a kickback. Now, of course, this may be an accepted practice in some places and the Christian GP has no problem with doing this whilst then presenting themselves as a mature, well-to-do Christian and upstanding member of society and making various religious oaths to do good, singing proudly about their integrity and wanting God to clean and refine their heart and wanting them to serve God in all their life while totally ignoring their own hypocrisy in the workplace. And this is a true story, as it turns out. These things happen all the time. We can feel fine with acting hypocritically in one part of our life and not another. And we need God's forgiveness. We need his cleansing power to come under him as Lord of all. That's the third symptom. The fourth is this, doing religious deeds that are of no value to God. To God. Doing religious deeds that are of no value to God. You know, the common practice of the Pharisees was to be so detailed. They were almost like accountants. They were so detailed in taking order of the things, that, taking stock of the things that they would give to God because the general principle and rule was 10% that you would give to God, 10% of your income. And so they would do that even onto their spice rack. The dill, the mint and the cumin, they would carve off 10% and donate that to the temple as if the temple you know, couldn't get its own spice rack. But they were so diligent, so, so diligent in giving 10%. And that was an act of their piety. Now, do you think that God cares about getting 10% of the spice rack? Of course he doesn't. It's ridiculous. That's why Jesus points it out in verses 23 and 24. And this problem in the heart was there was so much focus on calculating what things you need to do. It had nothing to do with God himself. There was no effort that went into loving God and worshipping him and loving the neighbour. It was all calculating, making sure they had every loose end tied up to have a presentable life towards others even, not even God. So do we do things like this today? Yes, we do. Let me give you a couple of examples. Many of us say grace, that is, we give thanks to God at a mealtime, breakfast, lunch, dinner, typically dinner, but depends on your family, your tradition. But think about this. Let's say you're giving thanks to God for being your provider and on the other hand, you're constantly worrying about money. That really doesn't make sense, does it? Because the point of grace is saying, God, we trust you as our provider. This food, which clearly... 
we went to work or we got money from somewhere and then went to the shops and bought the food and then made the food and we have put it on the table to eat together as a family, we're actually saying, God, this comes from you when we give thanks or we say grace. And yet, if we're constantly worrying about money, do you think that you're really giving thanks? Or do you think that it all comes down to your hard work? As it turns out, that when we do these religious practices without any thought or concern for God with them, they actually become of no little to no value to God. Another example. Many of us read the Bible religiously. It's a great term, isn't it? And yet, do we actually do what it says? Notice that one of the ways that Jesus calls out the Pharisees and the scribes, it says, do what they say, not what they do. What they preach, but do not practice. You can really void the good work you think you're doing by reading the Bible if you're not willing to put it into practice. This is a symptom of being a Pharisee. What is the remedy? Well, we need to return to the heart of worship. Back when uh, that song was written, Heart of Worship, by a guy called Matt Redman, uh, they were in a quite a successful church uh, in England. And one of the problems that had been happening amongst this growing congregation is it become a bit of a performance. That the best sound system, the best musicians, you know, they had a place full of excited and exuberant people and yet had it been, become a performance. And so the senior pastor said, we're just cutting everything out. We're not even going to have a worship leader. We're just going to have silence in space of worship until God moves us in our hearts to worship him, not because of the stage show, but because it's about him. And it did something very important. It cut back all the attractional stuff, all the stuff that you know, makes you feel really great about being a church and made it about Jesus. And so he wrote a song about it. And this is what the lyrics go. It says, When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come. Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. To the heart of worship, it's not about doing particular things for God. It's about God himself. That's symptom four. Symptom five is surface-level repentance. Now, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus uses an illustration of cleaning the outside of a cup or a plate, but leaving the inside dirty. Imagine, you know, you're doing the dishes at home and you just never clean the inside of the cup. And so it's just filthy when you, you know, you take it out next time to put some food in it or a drink in it. It's just like dirty. And you keep doing that over and over and over again. It's ridiculous. It's pointless. And Jesus is saying that that is what the Pharisees' religion does. They're doing things that are pointless and ridiculous. They're saying that you know, if we make ourselves look good on the outside, that's enough for God. And yet their hearts are corrupt and hypocritical. There's a couple of examples in 
uh, verse 5 of the traditions that had built up um, in Jesus' uh, ministry at this time amongst the Pharisees. One was having broad phylacteries. A phylactery was a little leather box which went on your forehead. It had four compartments in it that had tiny little scriptures that were rolled up and put inside. And then you would also have a similar one on your arm. So it's a leather box strapped to your forehead and one strapped to your arm. And the scriptures inside them were the scriptures in the Bible that encourages you to keep the Bible on your head and on your arm and talk about it at all times. Of course, when it was explained, it was actually a metaphor in Deuteronomy. The idea was to keep God's word on your mind, not literally have a little box with scriptures that say that on your head. You can see how messed up things can get. You can lose the meaning and be all about the tradition. Another thing, uh, it talks about their fringes long. Now, it wasn't their hair fringe. There were a bunch of emos with the long fringes cruising around in the first century. It was the probably better translation is tassels. They would attach a tassel to their clothes and the longer the tassel, the more holy or pious you were. It was supposed to be a sign that you were part of God's people and yet it had become a competition who had the best-looking box on the head with the Scriptures, who had the longest tassel in the group. And so they looked good as if they were being very religious and clean. It signified that they kept away from sinners and bad people. But as it turns out, they were only willing to make these superficial changes, but their hearts remained untouched. It's like, you know those Jesus fish tattoos that you can, uh, Jesus fish um, plates that you can get on the back of your car? You can get a tattoo, of course, if you want to. And you put one on the back of your car and you think, yes, this makes me really Christian. And you drive that car with pride. You better be careful how you drive, of course. Right? And yes, you might well get a Christian tattoo that's become popular, you know, with some sort of scripture on it or a cross or something else, you know, as, as if that that would increase your religiousness. Or perhaps even you might carry a cross around the neck. That's become quite popular as well over the years. It didn't used to be popular, by the way, any of these things. But they've become popular. Imagine you put your effort into all these sort of outward signs and yet you are never willing to deal with your own selfishness, greed and pride. You just clean the outside of the cup and the inside remains filthy. A good example of this in the Bible is a guy called Jonah. Jonah was very concerned about being holy and God told him to go and preach to an unholy people, the Ninevites. And Jonah was like, I'm not going to the Ninevites. I don't want to preach to them. They're bad people. They've been oppressing our nation. The Assyrian army have you know, killed many of our people. They've, they're evil. They're the sort of worst of the worst. And so he ran away. He sort of went the opposite direction. So Nineveh was that way and Jonah went that way. He got into a ship and tried to escape from God. The problem is, for Jonah, he couldn't escape the evil in his own heart. He could escape the bad people out there but he couldn't escape the bad guy in here and that is so true for us we can think that we can avoid all the bad people 
the sinners, you know, the irreligious, those that aren't as pious as us, that don't have as long a tassels or as good Christian tattoos as us, all the while ignoring that perhaps the biggest sinner you know is this person right here. Imagine that. What is the remedy for this? Be cleansed by God and humbled. You see, our sins on the inside actually make us unclean before God. God doesn't see as man sees. God looks to the heart. Our displays of religion do nothing to change the heart, but Jesus comes to clean the heart. His own offer of his own costly life. Now, Jesus literally laying down his life for ours tells us something. That Christianity is valuable, it's costly, and it should be life-transforming from the inside out. And if it's not, there's a problem on the inside. Okay, let's get to symptom six. This is appearing righteous outwardly, verses 27 and 28. So the Pharisees were excellent at virtue signaling. That is, they did good deeds to be seen by others, but inside it says they were filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Let me think of an example today. We love recycling, don't we? We love it. We love putting stuff in the special bin. You know, those more conscientious about it will wash out the things before we put them in the special bin. You know, we'll make sure that we don't leave any rubbish around. Australia is like a very clean country, by the way. We're very careful and conscientious about picking up after ourselves now. There have been enough PR about this. In fact, it's become a sign of your secular piety, even, of how much you care about environment, recycling, leaving a small carbon footprint. You'll, you see heaps of, sort of celebrities and actors and well-to-dos talk, you know, like sharing with the world how they're trying to reduce their personal carbon footprint you know, by going vegan or doing you know, whatever else they can do to reduce the amount of carbon monoxide or dioxide going into the air. And they love telling people about it, don't they? And yet secretly, in their hearts, they are so excited to gather up as much new technology as they can. When the new iPhone comes out, just came out recently, they've got it. They've already got it on pre-order. You know, they've updated to the latest and the greatest of everything. But no, certain parts of the carbon footprint that are well supported by the rest of society, that are looked upon proudly by others, they will do. But on the inside, they are just as consumed by consumerism as everyone else, you know, and those that, you know, condemn the inequality and the things we do in our society that are bringing others down are very willing to put a tip on the grand final for the Western Bulldogs and lose all their money yesterday and very willing late at night to look up pornography as well. And what this tells us in our hearts, is that we are all over the shop as people. We do things to look good in front of others, righteous deeds look good in front of others, and yet we have no idea what it means to seek for equality and care for the vulnerable, you know, for those who are products of a culture which loves gambling and has found new ways to make a generation of addicts. And we speak the same of pornography as well. It is a big problem. We are consumers at our heart. It is a big problem that we would love to 
appear righteous before others, but really we have not got a handle on it at all. What is the remedy to this? The remedy is freedom. Jesus came to set us free for freedom's sake. Jesus frees us that our righteousness, that is our right standing, comes from him, not from the opinions of others. And that is a transforming thing because you no longer need to perform for the sake of others. You no no longer need to fear how others will cast you, the identity that they might give you. You can just do things because God has given everything to you and do things out of gratitude. It means, hey, you can still be a recycler. You can still have a small carbon footprint. But you just don't need to tell anyone about it. Right? The result of this, and Jesus taught about this on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do your good deeds in secret. Why? Because it tests your heart. It is so much better that nobody knows. It doesn't go on your Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagram, your TikTok, whatever it is. It doesn't become this thing that everyone needs to know about because if you're doing it for them, you're not doing it for God. But Jesus says, the things you do for your heavenly Father, he sees in secret and he will reward you. He also sees the bad things you do in secret too. So let us then turn away from appearing righteous outwardly. Last one, seven symptoms. The last symptom is one that gets all of us. Generational pride. Pharisees, we see in verse uh, 29 and 30, think they're better than the last generation. They think they've got it more together. They think they wouldn't have killed the prophets as the previous generation did. But Jesus doesn't look at outward appearances. He looks at the heart. Jesus tells them that they have condemned themselves by saying they are children of their fathers. They are just as bad and tainted by sin. Is this true for us? Well, I, I think this is a big problem, actually, in today's culture right now. We think we're better than previous generations. We think we know better. We think we have a better handle on morality, particularly, than other generations of a previous era. We think that having freedom and choice are the highest moral virtues and objects of a whole culture and society. And yet I wager with you that we are under greater captivity by our desires than ever before. We emphasize a world where we can have anything we want. You can do anything you want. You can have anything you want. You can be anything you want. And yet... And our greater choice has made us unhappier and more anxious than ever before. There is a trend line that follows the sexual revolution and what we've seen since the 1960s and onwards and an increase, a parallel line, an increase in anxiety and depression and mental health affliction upon the human soul which goes totally against the narrative. The narrative says... More choice, more freedom, you'll be happier. The reality is more choice, more freedom has made us captive to our desires and we are as messed up or more so than we've ever been. What a danger our culture and generation 
is in. We think we're more free, but the reality is we're more captive than ever. What is the remedy? Jesus offered to the whole city, because at the end of this seven woes and his prescription of judgment upon the Pharisees and a religion that's got nothing to do with God and all about them, he calls to the whole city. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? See the love in Jesus' heart, like a mother hen wants to gather his children to protect them from themselves, from the evil in their own hearts, from being a generation that rises up, that actually despises God and is filled with pride and hypocrisy. And what does it say? And you were not willing. Jesus is like a protective parent who loves his children, who would do anything for them, anything. I mean, for the parents amongst us, we know that we would do so much for our children. And our God is just like that. The mother hen, for those of you who had chickens, we know the mother hen will defend its chickens, its chicks. It will protect them. It will gather them. It will look after them. And Jesus' great desire to do that was fulfilled this very week. Jesus' great protection that he offers, actually, was that he would take the judgment that was due to people like the Pharisees and the scribes here upon himself. Because, gee, they tick all the boxes. They've got all the symptoms. And Jesus as the parent who loves his children and will do anything, anything for them, says, I will take the judgment myself. If only you would have a heart change. If only you would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because when you do this, you will find that the one that they've been ignoring, the one they've been hypocritical against, the one who's called out judgment against them was willing to go to the end for them because he loves them. Jesus did go to the cross and lay down his life, give it all, a judgment due to an evil and adulterous generation out of great love. Let me finish with this. Uh, In 1915, a lady called Dorothy Lee Sayers was amongst one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University with a degree and she decided to begin her writing career with detective fiction. The main character in her detective novels was a guy called the Lord Peter Whimsey. And he became an accomplished detective. And so as each novel goes, uh, this uh, character, the Lord Peter Whimsey, was a bit of a troubled guy, but he developed a love interest. And this love interest, as it turns out, was a little bit like Dorothy Lee Sayers. She also was a graduate from Oxford University in the books. She also, like Dorothy, was a writer of detective fiction. And her name was Harriet vain. It didn't take people too long at the time to realise that Dorothy Sayers had so fallen in love with the character in her story, the Lord Peter Whimsey, that she decided to write herself into her book as Harriet Vane and marry the man that she loved. She was the missing link in his life. In the same way, the Christian gospel tells us that God, the author of life, wrote himself into the story of humanity 
out of love for his people. Jesus Christ saw us floundering in darkness, hypocrisy, with judgment heaped upon ourselves and we had no idea it was happening. And he writes himself into the story because he loves us and is willing to take that story to the end through a cross into a resurrection life and a great wedding at the end for God and his people. What a great promise from the great physician who would diagnose from our symptoms our heart's condition and provide the great remedy in himself. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this good news that you are the one who came and gave yourself for sinners and Pharisees like us who tend to be hypocrites, who tend to get this all wrong and think we're all right. Forgive us this sin. Cleanse us anew. Make us truly people who love you wholeheartedly and are humble before you. Change us, we pray, our good and loving God. We praise you for the work of Jesus. Amen.